You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Hello, listeners. Just a quick note about today's show. This week marks the one-week anniversary of the 2020 Nagorno-Karabakh War. What you're about to hear is the MWI editor interviewing me about a report that I co-authored about the Battle of Susha. This week is also a week that I traveled to Susha, where I'm recording this introduction, and walked the ground of the battle. Special thanks to my friend Rusev at the ADA University and friends with Caliber AZ who made that possible. It was an amazing experience. Well, enjoy the show. John, thanks for agreeing to uh, to switch over to the other side of the table and 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 giving me the chance to ask you some questions about the Battle of Shusha. Thanks, John. Uh, happy to be back. It's such an honor to be on the other side. So you have studied very closely this particular battle from last year's Nagorno-Karabakh War. It's um, a battle that, honestly, a lot of people probably may not might not have heard of unless they were paying very close attention to uh, the last year's. Uh, Nagorno-Karabakh war, but it was kind of a, well, you make the case that it was a decisive battle. You wrote an article about it. Um, it did really well. It, it, you know, it got a lot of attention. It generated, I know a lot of invitations for you to come on podcasts and like this and, 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 uh, do some other media about it. Uh, but it also kind of kickstarted some interesting discussions about urban warfare in the future, obviously something that you were very engaged in, uh, and you think a lot about. So I, I, I asked you to come on so we could record an episode and do maybe a little bit deeper dive for listeners who, uh, who have read the article. If you haven't, I highly encourage you to go read it, but kind of get into the weeds a little bit more on this particular battle battle. So the first question I want to ask you is, you know, this was a war that um, we've, we've, we sort of, you know, starting with the the 2008 uh, Russian Georgian war into, you know, 20, fast forward to 2014, you have Crimea and, and, and still ongoing Eastern Ukraine. And now we've got this and there, there, there's sort of three examples of things that observers are looking to for kind of lessons about contemporary conflict and the future battlefield. Um, this one in particular seems to have generated kind of a ton of um, pretty pretty sweeping um, and sometimes categorical sort of declarations about the future of war, about technology and autonomy and uh, a wave of things. You know, there have been people that said that, you know, the age of armor is over. There have been other people that looked at it and show that this, or say that this shows, you know, that armor is more relevant than ever. So what was it that made you look at it and said, hey, actually, there are some urban lessons in this war that took place in a pretty sparsely populated mountainous area. Yeah. So actually my study of it, um, you know, I, I'd actually seen all the, I started to get interested when the, the kind of the first analysis of, Hey, the tank isn't relevant. It, it, it's too vulnerable on a modern battlefield. And there was a lot of that being published as the war was unfolding. It, you know, this is only a two month war, but man, did it generate a lot of discussions. So my, you know, I, I'd, I had watched all that research going on and, you know, I didn't want to weigh in because I just didn't have the information. I, I was very skeptical. Of the fact that armor isn't important in war. I mean, I, I understood that the, the use, the amount of use of autonomous flying vehicles or, you know, drones, whatever word, and, and there are differences in the terminology were playing an important part you know, whether it's you can't afford an air force, you know, all this, you know, as, and as students of modern war, you know, I was trying to keep a, a close eye on it, but 
it wasn't really until you know, us at the Modern War Institute were looking for places to do a contemporary battlefield assessment that we do in the summer, right? We go out in the summers, we take cadets out to recent conflicts. We've been to Georgia, we've been to Sri Lanka, I went to Mumbai. So we were thinking about going into Nagorno-Karabakh. COVID prevented that, but I had started my research anyway, and I was fascinated by one battle, um, because I was looking for urban, right? Because I'm kind of the urban guy. One battle, the Battle of Susha City, that played an amazing, and I I, I can argue, and I do in your article, a, a decisive battle of strategic implications was over a city. And, and I hadn't seen anything on that. Uh, and I went digging. I found I found a lot, you know, in our research. But I was amazed at the fact that that hadn't been a part of the conversations that I had seen so much about. So, you know, the article does a really good job, I think, of contextualizing the battle. It talks a lot about the history, uh, a bit about the history of the region, a bit about the history of the city, um, sort of where it lies on this, you know, fault line, for lack of a better term, between the Armenian community and the Azerbaijan, Azerbaijani community in, in the region. So, you know, for listeners who are interested, I, again, recommend they go and check out the article. I don't want to necessarily get into too much of that. What I want to get into is sort of uh, maybe jump into kind of the tactical level first. Um, Shusha, as you've kind of described it, is in a lot of ways key terrain uh, in this in this region. Um, can you explain why that's the case? Yeah, so, so you know, this region of the world is an, another great example of what's going on globally, that cities are usually pop up just based on their on why people collect themselves into social organizations on specific pieces of terrain because they're important. And if you, you can trace the history of a lot of cities back to ancient trade routes, and that was just a, a point of geography that became important to these trade routes, to the civilization around. Well, Susha is that. So Susha is this ancient city that actually sits at the real on the on the on a perch above in the entire valley of the Nagorno-Karabakh region and it has visibility over everything to include the capital of this area the, the city that's only 10 kilometers away but it also sits a, a key point of a road interjunction so in Nagorno-Karabakh there's a a really important pass called the the Lanchan Pass that connects the city of it actually connects Armenia all the way into Nagorno-Karabakh. It's the only land pass to the main Armenia. And, you know, through Azerbaijan, you have different routes to connect Azerbaijan to the region. So it sits along this major pass, which incl also includes a road. Um, and some people kind of get the, the too confused, but the, the road and the pass lead to this city as of right now. Interesting, we can talk about later that they're part of the, the results of this war was to build a different road. Um, that bypasses the city. But right now, th that city sits not only on a perch of key terrain above, right? And it sits there because it always has as a key point of terrain and geography matters. Like you're not going to go anywhere in that region unless you go through that city uh, or it you can be seen by that city. Uh, so it it is a key point node, you might say, connecting this vital and almost critical to the entire area, a uh, line of supply, line of travel that you would get to. So control over lines of communication, um, not only really locally, but also into neighboring Armenia uh, and observation, as well as a 
you know, point to if you've got artillery pieces that you can place in, you can kind of reach out and touch a lot of places in the in the surrounding areas from this sort of high perch. Um, can you get can you give kind of a lay the lay of the land pre conflict um, second half of twenty twenty? It was populated primarily by Armenians. Uh, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, when I started doing the research on the city, right? So I, you, you talk about the terrain and how it sits on this perch and is surrounded by three cliffs, which is amazing. Uh, and the picture you used for the article is really, I think, an awesome picture because it shows how wooded and mountainous the area is around the city, but also how it sits on these kind of cliffs. But yeah, so for the actual human type, you know, element of this, as soon as I started talking about the battle, everybody said, well, you, you can't talk about 2020 without talking about 1992, right? So in 1992, during the first Nagorno-Karabakh war, it was, you know, may, you know, 90% Azerbaijan, Armenia in the battle took the city. Most of it was like 80% of it was destroyed during that battle. But, you know, fast forward to 2020. Yeah. It's, it's only populated by the Armenian population just based on the war and then what happened after the 1992 war in the reclaiming of the city by Armenia. So everybody, all the Azerbaijanis left and, you know, trying to really, you know, in both reporting on this and also studying the city, it's really hard to get accurate numbers or accurate pictures because we couldn't get in. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a highly contested region. So the amount of information that gets out, um, but yeah, so at the point of this battle, it's it's about five thousand, almost a hundred percent Armenian people inside the city. And so the conflict kicks off uh, in September twenty twenty. Um, at what point did Shusha kind of become a factor? Yeah, so if you know it, it, where you sit, most people, you know, most of the reporting started with like it should have the Azerbaijan entry into Nagorno-Karabakh, right? So they moved into, they moved into what's called this line of contact, they call it this, like many contested areas of the world, there's this point that's kind of almost a no man zone that's heavily militarized that we consider a DMZ or a line of contact. Uh, you can argue that Susha immediately became important and that it was under artillery attack um, from different areas from the beginning that they say, and again, the reporting is really hard, but pretty hard to refute a, a video of a blown up building with remnants of munitions around it. Uh, so it, it, it started to become important early on. I don't think, you know, this is the argument that we kind of have to have on military strategy. Um, nobody knew what the Azerbaijan real objective was. Was it the complete, um, retaking of the entire Nagorno-Karabakh region. Uh, so you could make an argument that you had to get to the capital city, uh, which we can talk about. And in order to do that, you have to get through Susha because you're not getting anywhere in that, that entire region unless you take that key piece of terrain um, because of how important that we already talked about it was. So it, it was under artillery attack from as early on as the first week or two of the inject. Um, it takes about a month, though, for Azerbaijani forces as they violently move west from their Azerbaijan into Nagorno-Karabakh and they start moving systematically, you know, and that's the, a lot of the footage we saw, right? The, the kill TV of advanced technologies striking 
tanks in the open, troops in the open, uh, and striking ADA assets. It, it was a real, and I agree that we should just study this because it was an amazing example of combined arms combat um, back against two major militaries backed by state actors, right? So that's the proxy war aspect of this. But Sushi became important from, I think, from day one. Even if the if the artillery bombing of it was just part of the overall, let's say, political objective of the narrative and, hey, you're shooting at our city, so we're going to shoot at your city. Um, but we don't actually see the military maneuvers on the actual terrain onto it, which could have, I guess, been a surprise to if you're the Armenian-backed government. It could have been a surprise that they're actually moving on the city. But in the beginning, it was... You know, you're striking civilian populated areas with artillery rounds. Eventually, it does become a fight that uh, that involves conventional forces within the city. Um, but there is also an element of, of or a contribution made by special operations forces on the Azerbaijani side. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, around you know, late October, we see you know a major battle happening for terrain in the area of. Uh, Susha or the what we call the 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 Lanchin, we, we call it in my article we call it the the Lanchin offensive. It's basically the Azerbaijanis are moving in that direction and starting to take key pieces of terrain, key road intersections. Right, so it's 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 great examples of tactics and operational campaigning of getting to your enemy and then controlling what's important. You know, you control what you can. So there's a amazing reporting about the use of Azerbaijan special forces. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's really hard to get into the specifics on how they did it, but we're almost positive that at some point in late October, a massive amount of Azerbaijani special forces disembarked and insert into the region around Susha in the Lanshan Pass. So, you know, we used the reporting that we could find to include videos uh, interviews of wounded special forces, Azerbaijani um, personnel to kind of piece together, you know, the estimates are about 400 special forces troops, you know, with some, you know, probably, uh, you know, um, added effect of the story that they inserted for f over five days, right? So 400 special forces are inserted somehow and then walk over five days through the mountainous terrain um, to get into key points around Susha City. Um, they supposedly split up into multiple groups. One of the interesting parts, and this is why we had to, again, put 1992, a quick vignette, which there's some great firsthand accounts of the 19 1992 battle, and there's not really yet of the 2020, explaining how the city was taken in 1992 versus what these special forces personnel start doing in you know, in, in October of 2020, um, one of the interesting parts is, you know, like I said, this, this city is surrounded by cliffs on three sides. There's one main road from the south heading into it um, and passing through one of the key villages that are kind of on the outside of the city. And then there's another key road that runs north out of the city, connecting it to the capital. Um, but then, you know, this main road coming into the city, which is also, remember, the connection back to mainland Armenia. Um, these cliffs that are around the city, so you, it's almost like you know, there are some pretty clear lines of avenues of approach into the city. So these special forces, rumored to be 400, split up into 100-man groups, 
moving to key objectives that they have identified that are important around the city. And the story, and I believe this story because it happened in 1992, is that they scaled the cliffs around the city in order to get into these key, let's say, blocking positions, ambush sites, things like that. They, they scale these cliffs, some of them did, which were left unguarded because somebody, and this is kind of historical, you know, all the way back to the American Revolution, Stony Point, you know, all these different battles that somebody said, no, that, that's not possible. Nobody's going to, nobody's going to come that way. Right, if you're building your city defense, well, these Azerbaijan special forces did scale the cliff, uh, and we start to see reporting about massive amounts of combat happening around the city from these key directions of the city. Yeah, which is, I mean, which is striking that that the defending force, you know institutional memories being what they are, maybe some of this was forgotten, but less than three decades before had had taken that city in part by scaling the cliffs and that they left them undefended. Um, I mean, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, but it just seems like such such an oversight, a tactical oversight that had strategic consequences, uh, no doubt. So okay, so so special forces had uh, had moved in um, starting in in October, late October, had moved in probably scaled these cliffs, got into places where they could start to isolate the city. At what point do conventional forces then come into play in the battle? Yeah. So again, you know, Hey, I, I recognize, you know, the amount of information we had to access, but this, I, and I agree this war was, was different, right? So the amount of reporting from the ground happening from both sides, this is a major, we saw this during the operation inherent resolve right the amount of people on both sides getting on twitter and announcing what's happening was complex from our own research we we view about late october almost simultaneous with the the special forces kind of reporting of the them already in position so about october 30th we start to see clashes of conventional azerbaijan forces uh, and you know armenian-backed government forces um fighting around the city, not in the city yet. So about October 30th, we start to see some fighting, especially there's a key village right on the outskirts of Susha that kind of control you'd have to get through in order to get to the main road leading into Susha. About October 30th, we start to see that. We start to see increases in the amount of artillery barrages on positions within Susha, right? So, you know, if there's a deception operations going on, which are, you know, you break this apart, it's just not saying it, you know, all war is bad, but it, it is impressive to watch. You you know that these special forces are moving on, you know, have moved into the city, are moving on the city. You, you see an increase of the number of strikes happening in positions that are visible within the city, right? Because in urban terrain, you can kind of hide from some highly technological ISR strike capabilities, and, and we see that. But we, we see conventional fight forces fighting, especially right directly south of the city, um, but we also see ambushes happening on both sides. So you see, you know, within the city that we believe there's about 2000, um, you know, defenders with everything from, uh, MR, MLRS rockets to mortars, to artillery, to armor forces, all within the city trying to hold ground. They're ambushing forces. So they, they move forward to the city at some point as well. The defenders did, um, which, if you look at 1992, was was the key moment of that battle was the 
the kind of you can say deception maneuver or the 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 tricking of the attacking Armenians to f- get the defenders to move out of the city, which is you know it's tactics. It's great. So they attacked multiple villages around in 1992, and and the defenders came out of the city and opened themselves up, which is for me it's it's an amazing study. So in 2020, you see the increase of striking sites inside the city. You see actual conventional forces starting to reach the, that southern village and moving up mortars and rockets and everything closer. Um, but then you also see those forces, the Azerbaijani forces, being heavily ambushed along the roads and passes that they have to go through to get to the city. So this is not, you know, this wasn't an easy fight by any means. And actually, if you read the article, there there's an absence of casualty figures on the price Azerbaijan paid in order to take this city, but just because of the, the reporting is almost, there's almost no reporting on that. Um, but you see a, a very heavy fight to get to the city even before the close fight starts. And then at what point, so, you know, just to kind of reset the time frame a little bit here, the war sort of kicks off in September, late October, you see the presence of the special operations forces. Then it's, I think in the first week of November that the conventional forces get closer and closer to, I think it's, I believe it's called Deshalti, the the village just south, just south of, of Shusha. Um, and then at what point does the conventional fight inside the city proper begin? Yeah. So like you said, yeah, that the first week of November, it's intense. The reporting is really confusing. Um, but you do see this, almost an, uh, an anaconda closing off of the city. You see Azerbaijani sources fighting and winning key interjunct, you know, basically cutting off the, the Lanshan Pass. And you see the the government of Armenia basically closing it to anybody moving. And there's some reporting of reporters being trapped inside Nagorno-Karabakh because they closed the pass because it became, as you see the fighting happening, these fight for that key part of terrain. And you see this anaconda around the city starting to happen. The shot that that village falls um and it's almost like they're completely surrounded they're completely cut off there's even a river the hikari river pass that would have been the they almost i see this as the almost critical first step was not only closing to the city and getting in position but completely cutting it off from any support that could ever come to it um not saying all hope was lost but you see that basically locked down from three main directions every one of the key roads that make it into the city. And then it's about, I'd say November 5th. Um, we start to see some very heavily reporting November 6th of conventional forces in the city fighting it out. And there's a famous dude, uh, you know, I'm going to mess it, kill his name if I try to say it, but basically a, a, the highest level Armenian official assigned to help with you know, to oversee the defense of the city on November 6th is reported leaving the city. Uh, and then that's when you see, especially the, the night of November 6th, very close fight, head on head fighting, you know, tanks on dismounted. You see the special forces, not only that got in, but the dismounted forces. So it's kind of hard at this point to see who's doing what with um, long, longer range anti-tank guided missiles, uh, the, you know, the hand carried ones, um, Versus you know, closer range RPG sevens, RPG nines, things like that, starting to engage the armor forces that are inside. You see house to house fighting. You see uh, 
Azerbaijan forces inside of buildings while Azerbaijan armor is trying to clear the way forward as that infantry supporting armor. Uh, it, it's a, it's amazing um, the amount of forces that are that collapse once it's basically closed off, and then you see the close fight happening. And I and I pointed out there's there was some really good reporting that once the close fight, once the defenders really realize that they have been cut off completely, and they're going to have to fight. The defenders can't even use some of their artillery and rocket capabilities because the enemy is so close now at this point. It really gets down to street on street fighting. And I think one of the important things that I didn't see reported on in this overall aerial superiority that Azerbaijan had, air air supremacy, the, the terms you want to use, was on about November 7th, right? So the close fight is happening. And on November 7th, fog rolls in. Right, which that's a, that's pretty weird. That just fog um, took out all that awesome stuff that we reported on and made it a lot less important in the close fight. And you actually see some Armenian. You know, I don't. I keep saying Armenian, but we know this is Armenian-backed forces. Right, the 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 inside the city. Let's just say the defenders are actually having more mm-hmm. momentum in the fight because now the aerial aspects are taken out because this fog. Because a lot of these assets are not all weather assets, as we've seen in our own wars, that once you know a dust storm rolls in, or the heavy fog, rain, whatever, some of our aerial assets are less capable. So that was an interesting point we put in the article was that on November 7th, right, right, right when the culmination of this close fight is starting to happen, you know, you know Murphy plays into effect and fog rolls in. And so some of the 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 high level, like the the TB2 drone that was so important in September and October becomes not usable on that day. And you see the Armenians fighting it out. And then there's, you know, T-72 tanks, BMP-2s that are starting to be engaged by the defenders because that that one aspect of the overall warfighting capability was taken down. So about no- November 7th, you see that fog rolling. But, you know, the close fight's happening. And, you know, there at one point probably around the night of November 7th, you could say that the, the Azerbaijanis had had taken enough of the city to say that they're more in control than the defenders were. So the reporting, this is when you start to hear, you know, Azerbaijan saying the city is theirs, Armenia saying, no way it's not. Uh, and it's confusing. Uh, and I think important to the overall study of the, the battle is that, you know, around November 7th, right, when this fight's happening, the the fenders are being pushed back. And, you, and if you look at that picture of the the actual city, the, how heavily wooded the outskirts of that city are, at one point, there was three major counterattacks launched by the Armenians against the the Azerbaijan conventional and, and special operations forces that were fighting within the city. And these were not feeble attempts. These were major counterattacks. And I think the reporting was really important on this, is that even when the you know, you've gotten into the city and, and you had pretty much gained enough control to say that it's more yours than it was theirs. If those Azerbaijani forces that were within the city could not have repelled that counterattack, this battle would have went a different direction uh, and it wouldn't have been over in the amount of time it would have been. But then this gets, to, and you know, and I talked about the lessons, it gets important, but so they were attacking, but then they had to defend against three major counterattacks that happened by the defenders, the Armenians, launched against the people inside the city 
um, they were able to repel those counterattacks and both sides paid heavy, again, no casual reporting, heavy costs. Um, but by the morning of November 8th, you see announcements that the city is in um, Azerbaijani control. Uh, you see <laughs> the same day, of course, the Armenians say, no, no, it's not. But then on November 9th, the Azerbaijan president um, declares total victory over Susha. Uh, and the Armenians, and this is kind of, and you know why I say that this was a strategic battle, is that once the city w fell and was fully in control of the Azerbaijan forces, Armenia basically surrendered, although we don't say that. Um, and one of the reasons that they, I, I say that they did was the only thing left in Nagorno-Karabakh was the capital city. So th they had to surrender because of once I lost that key terrain, which overlooks the capital city, right? It sits above the capital city. And this is why 1992, why the Armenians had to take the city um, was because from Susha in 1992, Azerbaijan was launching rocket attacks into the capital city and was getting ready to believed, let's say reportedly, uh, moving forces into the region to make a move on the capital city, right? This is, and if you lose this capital, although there have been a couple of times in history, right? There's everybody throws Napoleon in Moscow at me. Like if you take the capital, that doesn't necessarily mean you win. In this war, under this context, once Susha fell, um, once that city fell, Armenia surrendered because if not, they were within a day or two, if not less, of losing the capital city and basically losing the entire Nagorno-Karabakh region and being the entire region being under Azerbaijan control. So they, on November 9th, they surrendered because Susha had fell. Um, they surrendered and not only did they surrender, but they also signed an agreement, you know, negotiated, uh, and you know, now there's Russian peacekeepers and there's Turkish peacekeepers on, on the ground, but they surrendered every piece of ground they lost in the entire two month war. So it's an amazing, I think, moment um, that that one urban battle, despite all that was reported, became decisive, as in it led to victory, arguably, and brought the opposing force to the political table for negotiation, which is one term that we use in military strategy to say is, is a definition of victory, right? Uh, it, it, I mean, it's fascinating to me. Yeah, it's hard to argue Um you know, we can we can talk a lot about sort of centers of gravity um, and the capital, you know, a center of gravity only becomes a center of gravity if if, you know, if both sides essentially agree that it is it's worth fighting over. And the capital clearly was to them. But then by extension, because because of Shusha's like strategic location, that 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 became the sort of proxy center of gravity, taking that effectively made the defense of the capital untenable, which meant that you know, the, the, for, you know, for all intents and purposes, the war was over once the city was taken. I want to ask you though, you know, before the battle, if we could sort of go back in time, we don't know the outcome or anything. Azerbaijan has certain um, advantages. They've got a defense budget, I think something like four times as big as that of, of Armenia itself. And obviously, you know, Armenia's in support to the, the self-proclaimed Republic of Artsakh is, uh, is only one small portion of that. So, greater resources, um, arguably more highly trained special operations personnel, uh, air supremacy or air superiority, certainly possibly air supremacy because of the fleet of drones that they were able to, to fly. Azerbaijan has a lot of advantages. 
but the the defenders of the city have a lot of advantages too. Terrain, they're sitting on a hilltop. I mean, we can look at wars throughout history and just see how many lives have been lost trying to take the top of a hill. Um, it's not only a hill, it's a hill that has almost sheer cliffs on three sides. Uh, the defense typically has, there's built-in advantages. You know, we can talk about three to one force ratios and, and things like that. There are built-in advantages. And they've got ready-made defensive structures because of all these buildings and and everything in place. If you, you know, sort of in October, we're told, hey, you're, we're going to drop you in and you're going to, you know, command one of these sides. Which side would you say, hey, this one is, you know, is better tactically or strategically better positioned to win the fight for this city, the defending force or the attacking force? That's a great question. And it's it's hard to do hindsight on this specific terrain. Um, and it's very difficult, right? Like you said, uh, I think Michael Kaufman's probably done the most work that I've ever read on on looking at the Azerbaijan modernization of their military um, to include the immense amount of Turkish uh, backing, not only in weapons and capabilities, but most of the special forces we believe you know are Turkish trained Azerbaijan special forces. Um, so, it, you know, I'd still say that eventually the attackers would have won. Uh, we don't know, like I said, we don't know the how big of a price that they paid in wars like these, right? Wars that are somewhat proxy backed. I think time is an amazing aspect of the battle, right? So how much of this is about time and how long can the battle, will the battle be allowed to continue before some other entity interjects, right? Whether it's the United Nations, whether it's uh, the you know, the proxy force that is backing, right? So that's, that was one of the interesting things that we thought, as I was watching this battle unfold, we're like, when's Russia going to weigh in to back Armenia? Like, when are they going to, I say, hey, enough's enough, and and weigh in heavily, and that's where I think this battle. To me, it would, I think that the city, I would have built a plan to hold the city for longer, but hindsight's twenty twenty. Um, the Azerbaijanis did amazing work on not just overall military might. So that's kind of the I think the key one of the key points of this was this wasn't a this wasn't a drive to Baghdad immense joint capabilities and to just to penetrate through anything that was standing in their way into the city, right? The terrain didn't let you do that. Um, you had to develop not only a multiple plan to attrit the defense uh, based on your intelligence, right? So both human intelligence and signal, you know, and all other aspects of intelligence to know how to attack this, but immense amount of deception, um, breaking apart the, the overall strengths of the defender, you see all that in this battle. I you you could I could theorize right in so the battle of Vukovar in Croatia, they, they they lost too and they paid a heavy price, but they held out long enough for the international community to say, we're going to intervene here. So they held out just the right enough amount of time for the international community. And you know, if you talk to veterans of that war, they, they were pretty disgruntled and said they were basically thrown away. Um, and used as that kind of that political pawn to get the international community to intervene into the war and to get to buy time. So could Sushev have held out for longer and maybe Russia would have intervened and, and, and sent assets in, especially heavy aerial strike capabilities to push back before the city fell in general. 
you know, it's, it's all 2020, but yeah, I would have defended you know, differently, especially in your analysis of how, and this is where it really gets hard, right? Any defense, you really try to get into the mind of your attacker. Um, the city would have felt no matter what I think. So that's, that's my answer to that. It would have gone to the attacker just on the military capabilities that they were inserted. I don't know if I would have done my game war gaming if I'm the defender and, and, and realized the amount of work that would have went into. So clearly the planning for the attack of city Asusha happened. This wasn't a movement to contact uh, objective of choice. This was a heavily planned, well thought out um, objective. So, you know, so Shusha is a city, which means that it falls into the category of urban warfare, but it is a small city. Um, you know, obviously we can take a fight for a building and extract lessons that can be applied more broadly uh, into a fight for hundreds or thousands of buildings or a mega city. Um, but there are also limitations on the on the wider the scalability of those lessons. So, given it's a city of about five thousand people, I think it's about one square mile, maybe a little bit less. You know, is it? Do you have to be careful about extracting too many lessons that can't necessarily be applied to a city of a million people or five million or ten million people? Or is this? Hey, this is enough people, enough structure that there's really important stuff here that anybody that's thinking about urban warfare on a bigger scale needs to pay attention to. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that's a great question, and you always put context right in the kind of peer review of this article. I got a lot of pushback on even calling Sushi City a city. Um, and I've done some work on the the you know the difficulty in terms in city usually is like fifty thousand or more. Depending, it has a social an admin function. It has a very social aspect, and there are all these thresholds that nobody agrees on. I mean, in the in in some parts of the world, you have to have a royal decree you know, to call a very heavily populated area a city. Um, yeah, it was only five thousand at the time, but if you remember back, it was. You know, 25,000 in 1992. So the, all the structures of a major urban area are there. But yes, and, and you know, some cities won't be as important, right? Some cities can be um, bypassed depending on what world you're talking about and what part of the world you're talking about. But I think this is a, I do think there are very strong urban lessons to be learned from this. One, based on the, the fact that this city, like other cities in history, and I think very strongly of the future, you know, the difference between urban terrain and city, uh, th there's a difference, but cities remain, you know, these operational and strategic objectives in war is in a major conflict. They're, they've always been important. We've always either fought for them or in them. I mean, I'm saying all cities that fall then have these strategic effects. In this case, it did. And it's a great example of when it will in the future. Um, but cities could just be this key line of communication, right? You're going to have to pass through this line of communication. It's there for a reason. And this part of the world, it was a very critical piece of terrain, not just, you know, and this gets you into why do we fight for cities? Uh, we didn't even talk about the cultural significance of Susha to both sides. It has immense cultural significance. It's not just a city that sits on the key pass. It has immense cultural uh, importance and s signs to both sides. So th there's lots of reasons why it would be fought over just like different cities such as Stalingrad or Paris or Berlin, you know, why you'd fight for and, and, and invest so much of your blood and treasure into defending or attacking them. I do think, yeah, there, there's lessons. And that's why I try to pick apart everything from tactical 
the operational and strategic lessons here, right? I see tactical lessons even from, you know, how do you seize and hold urban terrain, right? So the, the amount of capabilities we saw here, this wasn't a drone fight. This was a, a close fight that required all arms. I mean, you had to have armor, you had to have special operations forces, you had to have engineers, you had to have infantry, um, supporting armor, clearing, you had to have a lot of, you know, anti-tank guided munitions. You had to, you really needed some anti, you know, some, some APS protection systems for your armor based on the threats. So you, I can put, pick out all kinds of lessons and I think we should, just like we did for, you know, whether it was the Yom Kippur war, whether it was the U S and, you know, 1991 in, in Iraq, what lessons are we going to take from this? Let's not just take lessons about drones. Let's take some lessons about the urban nature of this very specific war it lasted only two months, but it had immense consequences. Uh, and as those are the three you know, big lessons that I try to take out of this. And I put into the article uh, that I think can be there. I could get deeper, right? We could get deeper on the close urban fight that we need to remember. But like you said, I mean, this goes all the way back to how do you defend urban terrain that I think it's overlooked if you're really offensively based. Um, the, the tide of this war, as like I talked about the counterattacks, all that planning, how much are we investing, we being the international community, in defending urban terrain or, or do we see no urban terrain that's going to be that so important to us that we're going to have to defend um, and have literally have strategic consequences. I think that's a uh, an excellent point to end on the the article's phenomenal. I mean, you know, I'm uh, true in in all honesty for listeners. Um, we only touched on a few kind of highlights of it, and then did some deep dives into some of that stuff. So there's a lot more in here. If you haven't read it, go check it out. Um, it has, I think, importantly served the function of getting people talking about one aspect of the conflict that you know, for a conflict that was getting you know, maybe even a disproportionate amount of attention um, and people trying to learn from it and trying to, to, to find lessons in the way that it was conducted uh, and its outcomes. Uh, this is one that hasn't gotten a lot of attention, um, but perhaps until recently because your article and, and hopefully this discussion uh, have been and will continue to, uh, to generate uh, some, some attention on a pretty important aspect of it. So, John, thanks very much for, uh, for making some time to talk about the Battle of Shusha. Thanks, John. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out Individualized other podcasts as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.